Welcome to Speaking of Grace, the weekly message podcast from the Whole Life Church in Orlando, Florida. We're a multi-ethnic, multicultural, and multi-generational congregation committed to our mission of loving people into a lifelong friendship with God. We are committed to our vision of being a church without walls, fully engaged in serving the people of our community. Thank you for joining us as we continue Speaking of Grace. Symbolism is a powerful tool. It transcends words. It communicates complex ideas and profound messages. It speaks on a deeper level, stirring feelings and associations. The Book of Revelation is an apocalyptic canvas painted by the vivid imagery of symbolism. Its language has intrigued not only scholars and theologians for centuries, but also painters, fiction writers, filmmakers, podcasters, and also, apparently, toy-building enthusiasts. A casual reader might think that John the Revelator was just an eccentric poet in exile, feverishly scribbling his nightmares and daydreams and theological expression. But when we look more closely, we see that John was intentional. Maybe he understood that symbolic language would connect the known to the unknown and the tangible to the abstract and invite his readers into a thought realm of surplus meaning and connection. Perhaps this is why John coded his language with rich symbols that he took from ancient culture and mythology that his readers would have recognized and created hundreds of allusions to the Old Testament. Scholars have pointed out that of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, 278 of them include Old Testament references. People familiar with Hebrew scriptures would have identified Revelation's beast and horns with the book of Daniel. They would have been reminded of Ezekiel when John described eating a scroll. They would have understood that numbers weren't just literal numbers and colors weren't just colors. They would have known that seven represented completeness and the pale green represented death. And even though Romans would have recognized their empire in the book as easily as someone from the United States might recognize the symbolism of stars and stripes, only people familiar with the Hebrew scriptures would make the mental connections and understand the deeper matrix of the meaning in John's words. While the symbolic language in this message to the church may not be obvious to us today at first glance, a little bit of investigation uncovers what it would have meant to the people of Pergamum and those of us with ears to hear. Well, hello, family. You ready to go to Pergamum? Not purgatory, Pergamum. Yeah. It didn't work as well first service, but you got it. You got it. Second service got it. All right. So uh, I'd like you to help me out. We're doing this uh, every week as we go through the series in Revelation. We're reading the scripture together. I'd like to, it's kind of fun to read it together as we go. So just help me out. Um, I'll read some of it. I'm going to be quiet some of it. So if I stop reading, don't, don't stop reading. You keep going, okay? All right, here we go. And to the angel... The one who has the sharp 
two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold firmly to my name and did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have some to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So you too have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. Ooh, that's a lot. You know, we talked about symbols for a reason today in our intro video. Um, is because this one is just jam-packed with them. And so one of the things that I think can sometimes happen when we do a sermon along these lines is it can get a little dense really quick. And so what I'd like to do is give you, mm, I don't know, a main idea that you can connect everything else to, okay? So what I want you to think about in this main idea of, this, of what Jesus is saying to Pergamum is, which feast do you want to attend? Which feast will you attend? will you be a part of? And if you're not seeing it, hang on, and let's see if we can get there together. So let's go ahead and start in verse 13. I know where you dwell. Where do they dwell? Where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. That's a bad neighborhood. I don't care what neighborhood you live in. That's a bad neighborhood where Satan lives. I mean, that's not a good neighbor, right? Not a good neighborhood. But I want you to take a moment to think about this. They live where Satan lives. They live where Satan's throne is. So in a little while, Jesus is going to have a complaint about them. And what I want you to think about is what's not in the complaint. Jesus does not say, why didn't you move already? Jesus doesn't say, you know Satan lives there, his throne is there, why haven't you moved? I say this because I think it's really important, one of the points to take away from this is that no matter where you live, you can stay faithful to Jesus. And sometimes Jesus needs faithful people where Satan lives. He needs people who will be there to be faithful and be a witness like Antipas, who's named here. By the way, the book of Revelation talks about martyrs, but the Revelation only names one, and it's Antipas. The only martyr given a name in the book of Revelation, and we know absolutely nothing about him. Yes, there is church lore. There are legends about him, and we'll talk more about that in the podcast but truly, we do not know anything about what happened with Antipas, really. We don't really know. But here's what we do know. We know he was martyred. We know that he remained faithful. 
And we know that in Revelation chapter 1, when Jesus is described, Jesus is described as the faithful one, the witness and the faithful one. And so it's really, this is actually tying you back to what Jesus was described as. How cool is that, by the way? How would you like when Jesus talks about you to describe himself? There's Ken, the faithful one. My witness. That's pretty cool. And that's deliberate. Jesus is saying, this guy is like me. I love it. But it came at a cost. And, but Jesus congratulates them because in spite of Antipas being martyred, they remain faithful. That's a hard thing to do. If we were going through persecution here right now, and you saw somebody be brutally killed for their faith, you might be tempted to, you know, change things up a little bit. I mean, at least, you know, low profile. And yet Jesus commends them. He said, even in the face of death, you guys stayed faithful. Good job. So what is this throne that Satan dwells on? Well, if you were, remember we talked about how the, there are seven churches and they make a circuit. So we started off at Ephesus, we went to Smyrna, and this week we've come to Pergamum. And if you were on the road between Smyrna and Pergamum, when you came over the hill and when you came into sight of Pergamum, this is what you would have seen. Do you see any thrones there? Anything you could maybe possibly make into a throne. Some of you are seeing it, some of you aren't. That's okay. So if you look at that right in the middle, you see that is, that is the temple to Zeus. In fact, it was called Zeus Savior. And so if you look at it and look at it just right, it looks a little bit like a throne. And coming from Smyrna, that's what it would have looked like to the person coming. It would look like a throne area. The Acropolis with this temple looks like a throne area. So it could be that Jesus was kind of giving them that visual that some of them would have seen when they kind of came into that city. But is that the real throne? Is Zeus's temple the throne of Satan? Well, there are lots of pagan temples in lots of cities. So it probably wasn't Zeus's temple that Jesus was referring to as the throne of Satan. Although he may have been using the imagery of coming into that city that had that throne-like look. But what probably Jesus was referring to as the throne of Satan was the fact that Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor. It was the place where the Roman government had their governorship there. So if you kind of think in terms of Tallahassee, except that the difference was is that the governor reported directly to the Roman emperor and had the authority of the emperor to impose justice and to impose the, not American way, the Roman way on that place. And so the only person who was authorized to give permission for an execution was the Roman authority. That's why, that's why Jesus had to go before Pilate the Jewish people did not have the authority to have Jesus. They had to ask for permission. Roman And uh, Pilate was a Roman proconsul, a governor. The same as it would have been in Pergamum. So all these seven churches, Pergamum is the, the capital area for those churches. And so when Christians were being persecuted, they were being persecuted by the power that was placed in Pergamum. 
And so that's why, as I read it, it really looks to me like Jesus is saying, I know you live in the place where evil things are happening to you because of the Roman power that's, that's forcing a religion, religions, on you and not giving you freedom to choose because that's Satan's way. Satan's all about selfishness and Satan's about force. By the way, something to think about, when you're having to force somebody and manipulate somebody, probably not Jesus. Probably not Jesus. So, we move on, but I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Ooh, let's stop. Who's Balaam? Can I tell you a really quick story? Because I'm going to have to zip through this. Can I zip through it? Okay, let's zip. If you want to read the whole story, Numbers 22 through 24, you want to find out how Balaam gets 31 of Numbers. Okay, so, so here we go. So Numbers 22 through 24, chapter 31, tell the story of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet. He actually was a prophet that had a relationship with the true God. There was this guy named Balak. He had a problem. The Israelites were marching across the territory. They were going to the promised land. And Balak thought, I'm the next on their list. They're going to take over my country. What am I going to do? He's seen all of his neighbors try to fight the Israelites. Nothing good's happening. They're all dying. They're all being wiped out. And so he says, well, so fighting them, I mean, even the greatest uh, military in the world, Egypt, couldn't stand up to them. So what do I do? I can't fight them. So what do I do? I know what I'll do. I'll find somebody to put a curse on them. So he calls up. By the way, this is modern. I'm not saying he really did, but he calls up Balaam. And he says, hey, Balaam, need you to get over here. I've got some people I need you to put a curse on for me. And Balaam's like, how much is in it for me? And, and Balak says, there's a good amount of money in it for you. And Balaam says, I'm going to be there. But, oh, I guess I ought to ask God first. Hang on a second. Hey, God, you okay with me going cursing these people that, uh, that Balak doesn't like? And God says, no, those are my people. You're not allowed to do it. And Balaam's like, ah! Okay, so I can't do it, Balak. Sorry, um, can't do it. Balak thinks about it for a day or two and he gets back. It's actually longer, but anyway, gets back to Balaam and says, Hey, Balaam, I've thought about it. I got a lot more money. I'll really make it worth your while. Balaam's like, Oh, could really use a payday. I'll tell you what, I'll ask God again. Maybe God will change his mind. God doesn't change his mind, right? Okay, okay, anyway, maybe God will change his mind. Because I really want to do this. Have you ever done that to guys? Like, you know, you hear God saying don't do that. And you're like, yeah, but yeah. can you rethink that, God? It's really inconvenient for me. Yeah. And so, and so Balaam goes back to God. And for reasons I don't fully understand, God's like, okay, go, just go ahead. Well, Balaam gets on the road on his poor donkey. And... Uh, God apparently didn't really, in, wasn't enthusiastic about Balaam doing this. It was like, you asked me a second time, you knew what I wanted, but you're going to go do it anyway, so I just let you go. So he sends an angel to kill him. The donkey sees the angel. Balaam doesn't, donkey does all kinds of horrible things to Balaam to save his life. Balaam does not appreciate it. I'm condensing. I'm really condensing for those of you who know the story. I'm condensing, okay? So he does all kinds of stuff. In the end, he's beating the donkey, and the donkey like, has had enough, so the donkey decides to talk. And Balaam's so angry, he doesn't even think twice about the donkey talking to him. Why do we know that? Because he just gets like a conversation with the donkey. The donkey's like, hey, have I ever done you wrong before? Why are you, why are you beating me? And Balaam's like, well, you rub my leg up against the wall, and you've done all this bad stuff. You make me look dumb in front of Balak's people. You deserve to die. And the donkeys go, that's kind of funny because I kind of saved your life already. 
And then God's opened his Balaam's eyes. He sees the angel there ready to do him. And he's like, okay, I'll go back. I'll go back. And God's like, nah, nah, go ahead. You started off. Let's go. So I told you it's a weird story. We can do more about this at, you know, you know your choice when you want, if you want to ask me to preach on this some other time. Anyway, point being, he goes, he gets there. Balak takes, takes him up on a mountain, says, Balaam, curse him for me. Balaam's like, okay, here we go. May God bless the Israelites. <laughs> Balaam's like, that's not what I was paying you for. Balaam says, ah, I can't say anything else. God's not letting me. And, and uh, Balak's like, okay, okay, I get it. Gods can be regional. I'm going to take you to a different mountain. Maybe your God won't be over there. <laughs> so he takes him over to another mountain. Curse him for me. Ah, bless the Israelites. Ah! Balak, anyway, Balak gets really frustrated. And that's where the story kind of ends in numbers as far as Balaam's involvement. It kind of ends. So if you want to know the rest of the story, you had to be Jewish and kind of know the rest of the story through some of the folklore. Josephus was a Jewish historian that was around the same time that John was writing Revelation. And Josephus actually tells the rest of the story. Because remember what I said, when, you, when we looked at it, he said, you're doing the same thing, the teachings of Balaam. What was the teaching of Balaam? I just told you a story. What's the teaching of Balaam in there? Here's the teaching. Josephus tells us what the teaching was. Josephus, in book four of his Antiquities of the Jews, chapter six, says, as he's getting ready to walk away, Balak goes, so I brought you all this way and that's all you can do for me. And Balaam goes, well, I do know one thing that would really kind of make the Israelites' God upset with them. Balak's like, ah, that's why I brought you here. And Balaam says, yeah, um, if you can kind of get them to do what their God has asked them not to do, that'll be a problem. And Balaam says, well, how do I do that? And uh, Balaam looks around and goes, well, you got some good looking uh, sons and daughters around here. And Balak's like, and? He goes, well, just send them over to the Israelite camp. Have them make friends with the Israelite kids. Have them hang around. Have them do stuff. You know? And then... When they want to get married, say, ah, oh, we want to get married too, but the problem is that, you know, you worship this one Jehovah's God thing, and we worship these gods over here, so, you know, we need to, we need to have, a, you know, we need to agree to compromise here together. We'll, you know, we'll worship your God, you're going to worship our gods, we're going to have a blended, you know, just, just this experience. we'll kind of have, it's okay though, because you know, we're not saying you can't worship your God, we're just saying, you know, worship our God too. I mean, you can do both, right? And, and the Israelites are like, oh, they're so good looking. Oh, I really like them. God probably won't mind. I mean, that whole thing about have no other gods. I mean, no. And it goes back to Genesis 3. Remember, Satan? Did God really say? Did God really say that? That's what it goes back to. Did God really say? Ah, you can have, you can have your fruit and follow God too. That's the teaching of Balaam. And the Nicolaitans were along those lines too. They just said they had the updated version of it. Well, you know, we're saved by faith through grace. And so um, nothing can take away the love of God, Romans 8, 35 through 39. So, you know, if you want to go ahead and do the things that are happening in Pergamum, 
Specifically, the things that are being talked about, it says um, the, the complaint um, is that you must abstain, I'm sorry, Acts 12, 15, 29, the Jerusalem council tells the Gentile believers, there's only three things we're really asking of you. Don't eat meat with blood in it. Don't eat meat that's been offered to idols. And don't take part in sexual immorality. So what you really need to understand is that for people in Pergamum, this was a lot more hard than you might think. Why? Well, because life revolved around the worship of many different gods and their temples. And so all of your social life was taking place in some god's temple somewhere. And you think, well, okay, but just have your own little parties. Well, have you, you guys have had friends, right? That don't believe the same thing you do and you get together with them. But what happens if they're saying, yeah, but when you get together with me, we're going to be worshiping my God that's different than yours. Because that's what was happening is that basically the, the Christian believers in Pergamum and these cities, if they wanted to take place in civic life, if they wanted to take place in the social life, they were being asked, being told that they needed to go to these idols, to the, to the temples of all these different idols. And you might say, well, I know in my heart that those idols aren't real. So maybe it's just okay for me to go there. You know, because I know. The problem was they'd been told not to do it by God. Because by going there, what would it look like? While they might know in their heart, well, let me just put it to you this way. Let me just, let me, let's go ahead and put it in real things. So, you have a coworker. Let's go ahead and say everybody here is married. I know everybody isn't. Just, just go ahead and go with me here. I just need you to do this for me for a second, okay? Let's say you're married. You have a coworker who you 100% know has a crush on you. Why? Because they've told you. They've told you. You know, if you ever want to step out on your spouse, let me know. So, you're, you're, so this coworker says to you one day, hey, why don't you come over to my house for dinner and we can do some work? Do you go? Okay, there is a, there is a very definite answer there. No. Excellent. But for the sake of the person who said no, what if your spouse wouldn't divorce you if you went? I mean, because you have self-control. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to, you know what I'm saying, right? You're not, you've got self-control. Your spouse won't divorce you if you go. They might, you know, your spouse has told you, please stay away from this person because they've told you. But you know your spouse won't divorce you if you go, and you've got some self-control. Is it okay then? <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? You see the metaphor? This is what's happening in Pergamum. And what's worse, what would happen if you were parked in the driveway of your coworker and other coworkers walked or came by and saw you parked there and they knew they knew that what was going on 
Or what if your kids came driving by and saw your car parked in the driveway? See, what I want you to hear is what God is doing, what Jesus is doing is he's contrasting Antipas, the faithful witness, with Balaam and the Nicolaitans, the unfaithful witnesses. You following me? Because sometimes it doesn't matter that you haven't done anything wrong. You're pushing other people to bad conclusions and that you are being an unfaithful witness. You know, Paul says it like this. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. Can I just say, this is super hard for the people in Pergamum because it's hard to not go to the feast. It's hard not to hang out with your friends. It's hard not to be involved Trust me, I worked in television news. I can tell you my colleagues went and invited me to do stuff. And it was hard not to be with them because they're my friends and I want to hang out. But my moral code said, that's not what you should be doing. It's hard. And Jesus says, don't compromise. When you know what I've asked you to do, do it even when it's hard. Jesus at the very beginning describes himself as the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Later on when he says what he's going to do if they don't listen to his complaint, repent or else I'm going to come to you quickly and I will wage war with you against the sword of my mouth. See, the sword, by the way, this is all juxtaposed with, remember I told you, the throne of Satan. Why? Because the proconsul exercised this Latin phrase, the right of the sword. And what that means is whoever had the sword, whoever had the right of the sword had the right to cast judgment. And it was final judgment. And so that's why they were able to execute people. It was the right of the sword to execute. And so Jesus says in this church, he said, yeah, I know that Roman proconsul. I know that Roman governor has a sword. He can take your life. But guess what? I've got one too. And who do you want to judge you? Are you more afraid of an earthly judge or do you love me enough to listen to me? And do you care about what my judgment has to say about something? Because if you don't do what I've asked, you've heard the words that I have to say that have come out of my mouth. You know, and I will judge you with that sword. But there's good news. He will give justice to the poor. I'm sorry. These are actually Isaiah 11.4 and Isaiah 49.2 are the texts that this sword passage is based off of. You can look them up more yourself later. But here's the good news. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one else knows except the one who receives. It's hard to be left out of the feast, but family, what if there's a better feast? Because what is that hidden manna? Well, 
What's, what's being referred to is the Ark of the Covenant here. Why the Ark of the Covenant? There are several items inside the Ark of the Covenant, but one of those items was a golden pot of manna. Manna was the bread that came down from heaven and sustained the Israelites during their wilderness sojourn while they were traveling to the promised land. Moses put some of that manna into a golden bowl, put it inside the Ark. However, when the Babylonians sacked Babylon, the Jewish legend was that Jeremiah, before the Babylonians conquered, was able to sneak the Ark of the Covenant out of Jerusalem and hide it in a cave. And the Jewish thought was that when the Messiah returned, the the Ark would be recovered, it would come out, and Israel would be fed with the hidden manna again. So what Jesus is saying is, whoever's faithful, I've got a better food I've got a better feast. When I return, there's a better feast waiting for you. And what about that white stone? Well, there's a lot of theories, but the one I like best is this one. That that white stone was, a, was something that would have been common in their time because white stones were given to the victors of races. People who were competing in sporting events would be given a white stone. And on that white stone, there might even be a password, a special word that only they and the person who is doing the feast for the victors at the end would know. And so you would take your white stone and you would hand it to the person in charge of the feast and say, I belong here because you know the name, I know the name, here I am, admit me to the feast. Family, Jesus is telling the people in Pergamum, I get it. I get it's really hard to not go to the feasts that are here in town. I get that it's hard to stay faithful to what you're being told, but guess what? I've got a better feast for you. And I am going to put a name on that stone that's going to give you admission. And by the way, names are all about in the Bible about who you are as a person. And Jesus says, you know, Ken, you might be arrogant and brash, but I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to call you humble and servant. That's your new name. And you and I know that. And it's just the two of us. We know that because we have that intimacy and we know each other that way. Family, Jesus wants to give you a new name today. He wants to give you a new name. He wants to give you interest, entrance to the kingdom made new. My question for you, where are you? You know what I'm saying? Where are you cheating on Jesus? Where are you not cheating on Jesus? But where are you just saying, well, you know, I mean, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but it's hard. Everybody else is doing it. In my family, my kids would often get upset because we had a set of rules, not because I'm a pastor, but because of what I believe. And we used to tell that, we don't ask you to do things because I'm a pastor. We ask you to do things because this is the Wetmore way and Wetmores are different. And that's good. We want you to be different. Are you different? Are you proud to be different? Do you want into the feast? Family, I want to challenge you when you leave today. We have two tables with white rocks on them today. When you leave here, go out. There's Sharpies. Write the new name that you want Jesus to give you. Are you bitter? Why don't you write down joy? Are you angry? Why don't you write down peace? Are you sad? Why don't you just put whatever it is that you want Jesus to identify with? Don't put your real name on there. Just put the name and then put it into the baskets. And next week, we're going to have this beautiful art installation with all your stones with the names written on them. And we're going to be reminded whenever we see that installation that Jesus has a place for you at the feast made new. Just remain faithful. And uh, don't forget, come back next week. Thyra Tyra.
Say that a couple times quick. All right, we'll look forward to having that one next week. Thank you so much for being a part of our family. Let's go ahead and have prayer. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your Sabbath. And we pray that you would bless each person who's been here. Help us to remain faithful. Help us to look forward to that great feast and not be worried so much about the little feasts. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, family. I love you. Go love your world. Hi, this is Randy McGray, podcast producer and host here at Whole Life Church. Loving people into a lifelong friendship with God is our mission at the Whole Life Church, and our podcasts are designed to help facilitate conversations that help us grow together in that pursuit. Now that you've heard the message for this week, don't forget to check out the Whole Life Takeaways for this message. Swipe up in today's show notes and join the conversation. Speaking of conversations, each Wednesday morning we take a closer look at the week's message. That's right, the one you just listened to. We discuss practical ways to apply spiritual lessons and ask honest questions about the issues we face as Christians, all focused through the lens of grace. Your voice is a welcomed addition to that conversation. We encourage your thoughts and your questions by sending a voicemail or text to 407-965-1607 or send an email to podcast at wholelife.church. You can find everything podcast-related on our website, wholelife.church slash podcast. And plan on spending every Tuesday evening and Wednesday morning with us as we bring you the Whole Life Church inspiration you love straight into your headphones. Thanks for listening and have a great week.